Hear the word of God from a selection of passages showing God's heart for justice in the Old Testament. Exodus 22, 21 through 27. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. If you take a neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 16. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Reading from Leviticus 1933 to 37. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, weight, or volume. Your scales and weights must be accurate. Your containers for measuring dry materials or liquid liquids must be accurate. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You must be careful to keep all of my decrees and regulation by putting them into practice. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 25:17. Show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 25:35 to 40. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and cannot support himself, support him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident and allow him to live with you. Do not charge interest or make a profit at his expense. Instead, show your fear of God by letting him live with you as your relative. Remember, do not charge interest on money you lend him or make a profit on food you sell him. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell himself to you, do not treat him as a slave. Treat him instead as a hired worker or as a temporary resident who lives with you, and he will serve you only until the year of Jubilee. Numbers 35, 13-15 Designate six cities of refuge for yourselves, three on the east side of the Jordan River and three on the west in the land of Canaan. These cities are for protection of Israelites, 
foreigners living among you, and traveling merchants. Anyone who accidentally kills someone may flee there for safety. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 14, 28 through chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your town, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. Reading from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 19 through 22. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. Psalm 51 verses 16 through 17. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through the courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incest of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are burdens to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift your hands in prayers, I will not look. Though you may offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord, God of heaven's armies, will be your helper. 
just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your course into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercies on the remnant of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, church family. I hope you're doing well. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm struggling a bit. I'm tired of this pandemic. Um, I'm tired of how it's killing people, taking away jobs, secluding people, and exasperating existing problems. I'm naturally an optimist, pers- optimistic person, and I know God is moving and working through this process, but for now, just to be completely real with you, I'm, I'm struggling. I know a lot of you are as well. I thank God there's so much that my hope isn't found in our current situation and time. My hope is found in who God is and what he has promised. And I love and I appreciate all of you so much. I thank all of you guys for the words of encouragement, the text mails, the emails, the cards, the phone calls. I appreciate them so much. Please continue to reach out to each other, to support each other, to love each other well during this difficult time. Guys, we're almost done with our series in the Pentateuch. Including today, we only have three more sermons. So today, then two more weeks left in the Pentateuch. And we started this journey at the beginning of the year. Back then, we haven't even heard of the term social distancing. We had no idea what that word was or that term was. Face masks were only worn in public by criminals and Wesley from the Princess Bride. Back then, people would shake hands and they would even hug. We've come a long way since then. And I pray and hope that you've seen the beauty of the story that is being presented in the Pentateuch. It's an incredible story of a creator God pursuing and rescuing his people. He then establishes them and calls them to be a blessing to the nations. They point towards a wonderful future reality and are actually instruments of that reality happening. I hope you see that the Pentateuch is more than just the law, or it's more than just the book of Genesis than the boring books that come after. It is all woven together to show you the amazing gospel story. One bum rap that I believe the Pentateuch gets from people is that some some people just think it's a bunch of rules and regulations. That's a series of books about religion, and that Jesus came and got rid of religion and gave us relationship. I hear that all the time. It's not about religion, it's about relationship, and the Pentateuch is all about religion. And I see how some people get this. There's a lot about ritual sacrifices, festivals, and ceremonies. There's also a lot about laws and commandments and building religious structures. So on the service level, people can look at this and say, not for me, I'm all about relationship. While I hope by people that you have seen that all this is for relationship. Last week, we saw how the sacrifices and offerings brought people to God. They allowed them to worship, truly worship, and then established them as people and pointed them to Jesus. It was really focusing on how the Pentateuch teaches the vertical relationship that God has established and blessed man with. Today, I want to focus on how the Pentateuch teaches, teaches us the horizontal relationship. Today, we're going to talk about biblical justice. And I'm very intentional about that term, biblical justice. Paul Metzger says, biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole. It stands at the center of true religion, according to James, who said that the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Earlier scripture says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Biblical justice flows from God's heart and character. As true and good, God seeks to make the object of his love whole. 
This is what motivates God throughout the Old Testament and New Testaments in his judgments on sin and on injustice. This is for both the whole people of Israel and for the individual. This idea of being whole and good and complete is not just meant for one's personal morality. That's what the Pharisees messed up. That's how Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 22, 23 by saying, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The same problem still arises today. Especially given the tendency in some Christian circles to downplay justice while highlighting personal morality. Both individual transformation and community transformation are part of restoring wholeness. While morality and immorality are birthed in the human heart, justice is centered in God's heart. We are to purify our hearts whose desires lead us to sin. And with transformed hearts, we are to extend God's justice to the poor, the orphans, the widows, and to show no partiality. Do you guys see this? Personal morality is good, it's great, but God changes our hearts so that we can pursue holiness and show who God is. But justice is just as important. With our new hearts, we can show God's heart to the world. Personal morality is to lead us to seek justice. In our post-Christian setting, many skeptics view religion as corrosive, divisive, and a source of actually of injustice. But the kind of religion that the Bible advocates is rooted in justice that flows from the heart of God. It seeks to bring all things into wholeness of God. As it was justified by faith in God, in the God of all justice, we are to experience the wholeness that he brings and extends as citizens of his kingdom. Tim Keller says this, A deep social conscience and a life poured out in service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith. And justice is a grand symptom of a real relationship with God. If you know him, it will be there. It may come slowly, but it will come. If it doesn't, you don't have the relationship you think you have. Do you understand that this is the heart of biblical faith? I know that's... I mean, that's powerful, that's hard-hitting. What Tim Keller is saying is that this passion for the poor, this passion for justice, it needs to be there if you have a real relationship. It's a symptom, it's a result of a real relationship with God. And though it might come slowly for some, but if it doesn't come at all, do you have real faith? Let's look at some of the areas that penitent calls for justice. What what I'm going to go over here is a classic list of those who have been considered weak and vulnerable in the Old Testament, those who we need to fight justice for. That doesn't mean that they're lesser. It doesn't give them a secondary status in the kingdom. It's just saying that traditionally these were people who would be more weak and vulnerable in that society and in the culture. And I think we could argue that this list is not too much different from today. It isn't a full list, not a comprehensive list. That would take a little too time. But this list does give a good picture of caring for the weak and vulnerable and fighting for justice. First group, first sect of people that I want to talk about, the Bible talks about, is justice for women. Exodus verses 16 through 17 has a part where it says, if a man seduces a virgin, and this isn't speaking of rape, which was punishable by death in Deuteronomy 22, 25, and 7. Instead, it's, it's thinking of seduction. It's, it's talking about a consensual event, and the man, man probably is more blameworthy in this seduction. So a man and a woman have laid together, now what? Well, in traditional relationships and courtships, a man was supposed to pay a bride price. Now, that sounds offensive. You, you might be thinking, what, is he buying a wife? Is she some sort of possession? That's, that wasn't the idea. 
the bride price was actually here to help protect women. Because one, a man had to show that he had the means of providing for a woman that's going to be part of his family. And two, it ensured a process of formal negotiations with the family. So marriage is a covenant, as we see in the Old Testament, and it consisted of two things. One, the formal ceremony involving oaths and vows, making promises before God and witnesses. And second, there was a ratifying of that oath um, in the sign and seal of sexual activity, which is meant to ratify the promise that was made before God. But people both then and now did the covenant ratifying thing without making the formal promises. In other words, they skipped a very important step then and now. The bride price helped to prevent a couple from saying, okay, secretly, let's profess our own love and affection for each other. I do love you, I do promise, now we're married. But if there's no formal process, um, it made it so that men would not take advantage of those circumstances. They had to have a bride price. So what happens if this man then whispered sweet nothings to a woman in a moment of passion they laid together and they weren't married? The Bible doesn't say that, that they're, that, um, that they have to get married right away. That doesn't mean that you can compound one mistake with another mistake by saying getting married. But it, it's, it's, it's a situation where um, if the father refuses, the man must still pay a bride price. Especially in this culture, it would have been difficult for a woman to be married who had lost her virginity. So these rules were meant to protect the woman. This bride price that still had to be paid, there were stipulations still in place, even of a circumstance where a man took advantage of a woman, even if it was consensual. There were still stipulations to protect those who were vulnerable. And Numbers 36 is a whole chapter dictating inheritance rights and care for women. And it just seems so out of place. It closes the whole book of Numbers, this book we call Into the Wilderness, with this whole chapter about women and, and their story of inheritance. And you're like, why does that fit in? It's because God cares for everyone in that culture. Women had no rights. They owned no land. They could not take care of themselves. But God showed that they had dignity and wanted them taken care of. Their justice for sojourners. Exodus 22 and 21 says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 says, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. James Hoffmeyer, a professor of Old Testament studies at Trinity International University, helps us define terms like citizen, foreigner, and sojourner. On the one hand, you have a citizen, one who is native-born and living in the land of their parents. Then you have a foreigner, the Hebrew word could be nekar or czar, one who is traveling through the land of another, a, a visitor. Then you have the word which is used here in our passage, which is ger, which means one who leaves home to establish a new permanent residence. The word is translated sojourner or sometimes alien. It speaks of someone from another place who entered into a country to live, to work, and to exist in that country. And what are these numerous verses about sojourners saying? Simply that we ought to be gracious, hospitable people, because we of all people, we should know what it's like to be far away from home. This is true in literal sense for the Israelites. God said, look, at, you know the heart of a sojourner. You had to leave Canaan. You had to go live in Goshen. Then you had to become slaves so you know what it's like to be oppressed and to long for home. How can you not be compassionate for others who are far from their homes? Even if you've been living here in North Carolina your whole life, this isn't your home. We're strangers, aliens, and exiles ourselves as Christians. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. We're just passing through. We too are sojourners here. We of all people ought to know what it means to be warm, welcome, and hospitable. Let me talk a second here and talk about our current political situation. 
The scripture here isn't saying how we should dictate our immigration policy or the number of refugees we accept into our country. You're not gonna find a Bible verse that says, here's what immigration policy should be like. Um, We should let in 50,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people. How many green cards you should issue? How many people from each country should come in? The Bible is not saying any of that. I'm not saying that there are, some answers aren't better than others, but those are things which require a level of knowledge and prudential consideration that the Bible wasn't intending to give us here. So what does the Bible say? It doesn't give us a number, but it most emphatically commands a specific attitude towards immigrants, refugees, and others who would come and live among us. One that welcomes internationals, foreigners, and refugees. We should think to ourselves, we know what it's like to live in a world that is not our home. Surely people who are spiritual descendants of Israelites want to show whatever love and compassion we can to those who are far from home. The Bible emphatically tells us what our attitude should be because these are people made in the image of God. They ought to have our compassion. Not to mention that we as Christians much, much must think of evangelism, that people might be coming from impossible to reach places and the Lord are bringing them to us. Why would we not want to show the love of Christ and speak good news to them? So while the Bible will not tell you exactly what political policy to make, it certainly tells us what our heart attitude should be. We are sojourners. We know the heart of a sojourner. We ought to show compassion to them. The next category of people is justice for widows and orphans. Exodus 22, 22 through 24 says this. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you, and I'll kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows, and your children fatherless. Here, this is what Moses is talking about, widows and orphans, a quintessential example of the weak and the vulnerable. Widows had little legal standing and were in need of special support. Unless they could remarry or unless they came from a wealthy family, they were dependent upon kindness of others to even exist. In verse 24, God says that if you do not treat widows and orphans with compassion, he says, I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, I hope you see what he's doing here. He's not literally carrying a sword and putting it over your neck like, oh, oh what are you doing with that widow? How are you doing with the orphan over there? No, it's, 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 it's what he's saying is in the law, it doesn't say how much or exactly what each individual should be doing for the widow or an orphan. God's using extreme language here to say it should be a given it should be a given that you look out for, the, for and care for the widows and the orphans. So much so that to not do so would be unfathomable. It would be like to wish it upon yourself. That's how much God hears the cry of the wronged. He wants us to look for ways to love and help widows and orphans. And this has been symbolic for the rest of our time, rest of the Bible, symbolic of those who are vulnerable, those who are unable to help from themselves, symbolic of those who need care from others. It should should be unfathomable for us to not care for them. So much so that to not care for them is almost like wishing it to happen to us and our children and our wives. Do you get that? Next category is justice for the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. But if there are any poor Israelites in your town when you arrive in the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year of canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. 
Now, this is a difficult text to understand, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Um, and this is something about, uh, kind of, you need a little bit of an economic context of the time. If you read carefully, you'll see that anyone who's getting a loan is assumed to be poor. But if they're poor, you must lend to them. Or if they need a loan, it means that they're poor. Now, this doesn't immediately strike us as make much sense because we live in a very different society, a very different kind of economy. So let me give you a picture here. This is a pre-industrial agrarian society. These are farmers, people who work the land. People did not deliberately go out and ask for loans that enabled them to get ahead. They weren't out there getting like, well, if I get a loan, I can start a business. If I get a loan, I can buy and build a nice new house. There was no mortgages. Everybody, especially at the beginning of Israel's history, was basically a farmer. And why did farmers need a loan? They all had their land. When God set up the land for Israelites, they all had land given to them. So they all already owned their land. Farmers only needed loans when the crop was so bad that they didn't have money to buy seed for next year's crop. The average farmer brought in a crop, they sold their crop, and all they were hoping for was to have enough money from the sales, the proceeds, to live you know, a, a subsistence level and to have enough money on that top of that that can have enough crop for next year's uh, growth. And there are a number of reasons why crop might not be good. There could be famine, there could be terrible weather, there could be military conflict, there could be death or an illness in the family. Um, and if any of those cases, just one year, if your crop was bad, your family was facing poverty. You didn't have enough to eat. You didn't have enough to grow for next year. And if you didn't have the money to have seed for next year, you're going to lose your land. You're going to starve. Therefore, almost always, if a person needed a loan back then, it was because they were falling into poverty. They're the ones who need the loans. And so if you get a loan one year because you've had a bad crop and then you have a second bad crop, almost always that meant not just were you in poverty, that you actually sold into slavery. But slavery is not what you think, and I, you and I think of slavery. It was actually more like indentured servanthood. You weren't actually sold, you didn't belong to somebody. But you just had to work for your creditor until you paid off your debt. Actually, verses 12 through 15 talk about that, even though we didn't read them there. And it's, that's the background. If you needed a loan, it's because you were falling into poverty. And against that background, this is what the three things I want us to understand and hear about working with the poor from, this, from our scriptures today. Three things. Number one, radical generosity to the poor is biblical justice. Verse one, chapter 15, at the end of seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. All debts were forgiven in the Israel after six years. Not only that, in verse 12, 13, and 14, which comes right after, all slaves were freed. People who had a loan were at one level of poverty. People who had fallen in debt to servants were actually in deeper debt. And every six or seven years, at the end of every six years, all slaves were freed and all debts were forgiven. Guys, I want you to understand, this was so radical for the time. I mean, there was built into the culture, built into this new nation, built into the very ground framework of this nation was this very means of saying, no, 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 we don't want poverty. We'll create a system where even those who are going into poverty, no matter whether it's their own fault or fault of whatever happened, fault of the brokenness of the world, we'll provide a way for them. This was radical. Even now when I think about it, I'm thinking about, whoa, 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 whoa. God, you want somebody to go into poverty. If I give them a loan, I have to forgive them no matter what after six years. My mind goes into like, well, what if there's only one year left? And they borrow a loan, there's only one year left. Am I only going to get like one year's worth of my money back? That doesn't seem right. And God says, not only must you do this, but you need to do it with an ungrudging heart. This is radical generosity we generally don't know about. We've never experienced. We don't even know. This is so foreign to us that we all bristle at it. I don't know what you think about giving to charity, but if you lived in that society, this is talking about in addition to the tithe, you're supposed to give this. 
If you live in a society like that, anyone around you, friends, neighbors, family, when they fall into poverty, you had to lend them, and every six years that debt was wiped out, regardless of how much more they still had to be paid. Why? So every six years, everybody got a reset. So even the slaves, every six years got a reset, which meant no one could actually fall into lifetime crushing debt, which is the main way people get permanently locked into poverty, especially these days. Therefore, God's calling an entire society of people to an astonishing level of generosity toward the poor. Do you see that? Biblical justice is radical generosity. Two, it's empowering the poor to self-sufficiency. It's not quite clear. You don't see it right away. But a little bit, if you look in certain verses, it says, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Instead, be generous and lend them what they need. There's a difference between what people call relief of the poor and what's often called economic development. Relief means you're giving them a, a, a Band-Aid. Um, you're keeping them from starving. It's a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. It's relief, something that acute and meets a need at the time. Economic development is much more expensive and much more div- difficult. It's bringing a person to self-sufficiency. Even though it's only hinted at, it's actually laid out later in different verses. In verse 13 and 14 of, of, of this passage, it says this, and when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. This is what they're capitalized. They didn't have banks. They didn't have cash. Uh, this is what it is, is if a person fell into debt so deeply that they had to become an indentured servant, that meant when you released him, not only was their debt wiped out, but you actually had to give them enough to get back on their feet. In other words, here's a person who's a farmer and the person has a terrible crop, just terrible. Maybe they got sick, they injured their leg, they couldn't farm, and they're facing poverty. They come to you for a loan, and you give them a loan, and the next year the crop's worse, and it gets worse again. Then they say, okay, I'm your servant. And so they work for three years as your servant. They fall in, indentured servant, and try to pay back. But after six years, the point is you wipe out their debt. That's radical generosity. You wipe out their debt. But not only do you wipe out their debt, you give them seed for their next crop. You give them some animals for their flock to live. That is supplying liberally from your flock for the purposes of self-sufficiency. Guys, it's not enough that we give radically. We're supposed to raise others into self-sufficiency. God says my people should be committed to that, not just radical generosity, but radical generosity to the level of economic development or empowerment of the poor. Third, biblical justice for the poor is also about hope. Realistic and yet remarkable hope for the poor, a vision for the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5 says, However, there need be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he'll richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his, these commands I'm giving you today. Yet later, actually, in 15, it says, verse 11, it says, There will always be poor among you. So do everything I'm telling you to do today. When you read that at first glance, it looks like a contradiction. It says literally, there need be no poor among you, but then later on it says, but there will always be poor among you. But I think you have to give the author the benefit of the doubt here. They're so close together that they're not a contradiction. So what's being said? There's a realism here, and yet at the same time, an amazing hope. On the one side, it's saying, of course, you can always have the poor with you. Of course, there were always people who were becoming poor. The Bible is remarkable, but there's also hope for those who are. The Bible is remarkably balanced when it talks about the reasons people become poor. 
there's oppression, there's calamity, there's self-destructive behavior. Because it's a fallen world and because we're sinful people, the world will always have poor. But what God is saying is, but there will need not be a permanent class of poor people among you if you do everything I say. On the one hand, this is not an idea of kind of social engineering to eradicate poverty that we think we're doing now. This is not a relying upon ourselves and our own ability to socially engineer and to make a, a utopian society. On the other hand, though, it's not cynicism. That so many of us have to say, well, there's always poor, so who cares? There's always going to be poor. What can you do about it? This is biblical justice. This is biblical hope. People who answer this call have a vision and a hope for the poor in your city or in your community. This is what God calls his people to. And with regards to the poor, the Lord calls us to radical generosity, a move to self-sufficiency, and hope. See, guys, what all this is doing, what what the Bible is showing to this culture at this time that's so radical is that when you're poor, you not need, what often happens first is you lose hope. When you live in a cycle of poverty, you stay there because you lose hope. And biblical justice is one that gives hope to the hopeless. That needs to be an intentionality about us. That needs to be what we are about as people is we give hope. We are radical in our generosity. We are intentionally asking the poor to be self-sufficient. We're helping them get to that point, but we're also ultimately we're giving hope. Hope of biblical justice, hope of a God who sees. This way of thinking doesn't fit in well with any modern political or economic viewpoint. This is not socialism. This is not capitalism. This is not Republican or Democrat. This is not a redistribution of all wealth, and this is not an oppression of poor. This is biblical generosity and biblical justice. And we can go on and on with our list of how God provides for justice. We can add those who commit crime accidentally. They have safe places in a refuge city. You can those how God treated his enemies, our enemies, and so on. But ultimately, we see in the Old Testament that God is passionate for justice. He cares for justice. It's overflowing. It is streaming. It is coming out of him. And in the passages we were heard read earlier, Psalm 51 and Isaiah 1 and Amos 5, we see God saying over and over again, offerings and festivals, what are they for? I don't want them if they're not matched by a love for justice. God is saying that all of our attempts at vertical relationship, all of our attempts at vertical relationship is nothing without the horizontal. Actually, what I think God is saying is that you probably don't have a vertical relationship if you don't show a horizontal. I don't think the vertical is not dependent upon the horizontal. What it actually is saying is that the horizontal is shows that you have a vertical. Does that make sense? The vertical isn't dependent upon, oh, I do justice, that means I have a vertical relationship. No, what it's, it literally is saying is that the, the horizontal shows that you have the vertical. It's not saying I better do the horizontal so I can have a vertical. It's that the horizontal shows that you have a vertical. Does that make sense, my people? This is vital. This is vital. The world will know we are Christians by our love. They will see the heartbeat of our Father through our fight for justice. Are you fighting for justice? Do you care for the widows and the orphans, for the sojourners, for the poor, for the weak and the vulnerable? Do you fight for justice? There are two reasons why we should do justice really quickly. And the one reason is simply because God calls us to do it. That's as simple as that. That God calls us to do it, we should do it, right? Sometimes my my son um, asks why a lot. And sometimes I just look at him like, just do it. Hudson, just do it. Josiah, just do it. Quit asking why. 
Just do it. Sometimes we need to be like, God, why do I have to pour? Just do it sometimes. Sometimes we just need to do it, right? And sometimes you might want to question, but just do it sometimes. That's what we just need to do. But the second reason is because when we do it, it gives glory to God. It's going to glorify God to other people, that people will see who God is. It's going to give credibility to the idea that maybe there really is a God who really has spoken in the Bible and who really has come in Jesus Christ. It gives credibility to our witness. It brings uh, evidence to our walk. In Acts 4, they said there was no needy person among them because they shared everything. And right before it comes these words, and the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ with great power. Why was it that they preached the word of God, the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people heard and were converted? Because the people of the world heard with their ears the message of new life, but they saw with their eyes in that community the embodiment of the new life because of the way in which they sacrificially gave the people in need. What they did, what, what the early church saw was radical growth of the faith. And this was a brand new religion. They were talking about crazy things, about a man who died upon the cross, the lion that became the lamb, the fulfillment, the Messiah. And they're preaching this crazy message. Talk about one God, a God that came and became human and became man and died upon the cross and is now resurrected. They're preaching a crazy message. Why in the world were Greeks and Gentiles and, and people who weren't even Jewish, why were they believing? And why were the Jews believing this was the Messiah? Over and over again, the disciples preached and preached. They were believing because their words were backed by the embodiment of their message. Because they saw in this beautiful Christian community, they saw people who cared for biblical justice. Because their words were matched by power. And the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we saw the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. My people, when we fight for justice, we show God's power. When we fight for justice, we show God's kingdom. When we fight for justice, we see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May that be us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your heart for justice. God, that you care passionately, you care radically for the, the weak and the vulnerable, for the ones that culture and society is often left behind, you are passionate about. God, thank you that we even have an idea of what it means to be good and whole and right because of you. That justice even exists, the idea and the concept that can be something more than just an abstract idea that somebody can define however they want to define. That the real true justice can exist and be defined because you are justice and justice flows out of you. So God, may we be people of justice. God, may we show the world that we have this vertical relationship with you by the way we horizontally live. May we be about the business of caring for the orphans and the widows and the poor and the vulnerable in our society. And God, may they glorify you. May they people see you. May they see that only, we only can know and care about this justice because of your work, because of the gospel. And may they believe in Jesus' name. Amen.